0: Say, Sylvie, can I ask you a question? You got a moment? What podcast did you just guested it in? Well, I was at the movie loot. Well, I was just wondering because I couldn't figure out why you would be listening or tweeting about other podcasts instead of our own. We lost potential listeners because of you. Now you start using your head. <laughs> Are you crying? No. Are you crying? Are you crying? <laughs> There's no crying? There's no crying in podcasting? Why don't you leave her alone, Carlo? Oh, you stupid, Tyler. (laughs) I've been podcasting for almost three years now, and I tweet all the time about it. And did I cry? No. No. (laughs) No. And do you know why? No. (laughs) Because there's no crying in podcasting. There's no crying in podcasting. No crying. You got five seconds to tell me where you buried the loot. Oh. Where's the loot? I don't, I don't know who's got the loot. I don't know if anybody's got the loot. I'm setting up a guy who's incredibly important to us. Hello looters! Welcome to The Movie Loot, the podcast where we share the best, greatest, most entertaining, and or weirdest film loot you could find. My name is Carlo, and we'll be sharing the loot today. This is episode 70, The September Loot. And September was an interesting month, to say the least, because as some of you know, I live in Puerto Rico, and we were hit by Hurricane Fiona towards the middle of the month. Other parts of the island suffered a lot of damages and floods, but as far as me and my family, we were okay, except for power, We were without power for a little over a week, I think, which pretty much threw my podcast schedule out of whack. So that's why we're talking about September now. And that's also why episode 69, the women's loot, came out in the start of October instead of, well, September, as was planned. But anyway, on that episode, me and my friend Sylvie talked a lot about female directors and a lot of the great work they're doing in Hollywood, but also on the film industry as a whole. I had a great time chatting with Sylvie, and in case you were wondering that intro was fake, she did tweet about the episode and I didn't make her cry. But anyway, that episode quickly entered our top 10 best opening weeks. So thanks to everybody for listening and thanks to Sylvie for the time. Some of the feedback we got from that episode, my friend Keram at K Maliki Sanchez said, Congrats on another great episode, Carlo. Through thick and thin, you continue to create a wonderful resource for learning, reflection, and discovery. And I thank Keram for his support and the kind words. But like I told him, he's part of this because he's been a past guest twice. And he's always been a contributor to the show with his feedback. He also said, I totally lost the connection that Campion was Sweetie, but of course, Thistle Press, referring to our friend Melody Owen, who mentioned it as one of her favorite female-directed films. And speaking of Melody Owen, she added, Sweetie, landmark movie, one of those movies that are like, oh, this is what a movie can be. Melody Owen also mentioned director Kelly Reichardt, which, like I told her on Twitter, we really didn't get into, but at least Sylvie gave a quick shout-out to First Cow as her favorite film from that year. There's so many talented women we could have gotten into, but there's not enough time, and that's considering that this is, as of now, the longest episode of the movie loop, so we tried to cover as much as we could. Amy at Amy Cat 1979 said, Oh fun, can't wait to listen to this one. Amy, I hope you did listen to it, and I hope you enjoyed it. Paul at Paul and Nicolas said, great episode, and Sylvie's insights and personal picks were fire. Darren Lumber from Nostalgia Cast said, I can't wait to listen to this. I am always, always interested in hearing opinions and viewpoints that are different from my own. Peter Loves Movies at Peter in London, UK said, great podcast, very interesting. And finally, our friend Andres from the Latin Jukebox, always supporting us, said, Just listen to the women's lute from my friend Carlo at the movie lute. Great episode. The Power of the Dog is one of my favorite movies. A great conversation and a great set of recommendations. A must listen. As usual, thanks to Andres for his non-stop support. He's a champion and you gotta listen to the Latin Jukebox. Before that, we had The Birthday Loot, where I talk about the films I saw during my birthday month of August, and we also had Special Episode 13, dedicated to a scene from Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. And speaking of Alfred Hitchcock, we recently had writer Tony Lee Moral for our Hitchcock Loot. Tony is releasing his newest book, The Young Alfred Hitchcock's Movie Making Masterclass, this month, so if you're a fan of The Master of Suspense, make sure you check Tony's book. If you haven't listened to our episode with him, The Hitchcock Loot, then do it, because he offers some tidbits from the book, and I can't wait to check it out myself myself but let's talk movies and again because of the issues we had in September with hurricanes and blackouts I decided to turn September into yet another short film month I've really dived into short films this year like no other year before but that's what was more manageable with the time and also it's fun to dive into that niche category of films so September I ended up seeing 17 films and nine of them were shorts so more than half so let's go freebies So the first film I want to talk about is a documentary that I brought up in my previous episode, The Women's Loot, and the documentary is called Be Natural, The Untold Story of Alice Guy Blaché. It is directed by Pamela B. Green, and it chronicles the career of pioneer filmmaker Guy Blaché from 1895 to her death and beyond. Like we mentioned in The Women's Loot, Guy Blaché's contributions to cinema were mostly forgotten or dismissed until recently, so the documentary is trying to correct that by highlighting all the ways that she was innovating and trailblazing since cinema started. I thought it was a great documentary. The visuals are very appealing and accessible, which is understandable since Green's main job is as a title designer, so the visuals are very easy to follow and streamline in how she shows the chronological course of events. It was one of the main things that caught my eye, aside of the relevance of the story, of course. The documentary includes lots of interviews with filmmakers like Agnes Barda, Martin Scorsese, Peter Bogdanovich, Ava DuVernay, Patty Jenkins, as well as Archivists and historians and Alice Guy herself in a 1960s interview. The narration from Jodie Foster is also very effective and well handled. I really recommend this documentary to any cinephile and maybe more people knowing about Guy Blachet's work can help move forward to a more inclusive environment where women can have as much opportunities as men. And speaking of early female directors, I also saw a 1913 short film from Lois Weber called Suspense. This was recommended by Sylvie and it follows the events at a family house after a woman is left alone with her baby while her husband goes to work. When a vagrant sneaks into the house and threatens the woman, the husband has to make the impossible to try to get to his house in time. This was an impressive short for many reasons. From a technical standpoint, it features numerous creative shots and inventive takes that I wouldn't have thought were possible this early in the history of cinema. Remember, this is 1913. From a triple split screen to a neatly choreographed car chase. But aside from that, I really love how the short manages to deliver what the title says. Suspense. Tension. As we go back and forth between the husband, desperate to get to his family, and the tramp as he approaches them. I really didn't expect to be so on edge, but that goes to prove how timeless movies can be. If you're a fan of silent films, I definitely recommend it.
1: A film from Pedro Almodovar.
0: Pedro Almodovar was born in September 25, so my intention was to finally watch something from him. I've only seen Bad Education, and it was a long time ago. So when I found out he had released a couple of short films, I thought, one, it works with my time, and two, it might be a good way to ease myself into his filmography. So I saw two Almodovar shorts. The first one is called La Concejala Antropófaga, or The Cannibalistic Counselor. And it's a sort of a spin-off of a character from Almodovar's Broken Embraces, which, again, I haven't seen. The character is Chon, played by Carmen Machi. And as the story goes, Almodovar was so pleased with her performance in Broken Embraces that he went and wrote her monologue for this short in one day. When he got back to the Broken Embraces set the next day, they shot this. So I don't know how the short plays into the narrative of the film, because I haven't seen it, but I don't think it's necessary. Sean is a counselor that enjoys giving in to her desires and talking about them. Now, I don't know much about Almodovar, but I do know Machi from her lead role in a hilarious Spanish sitcom called Aida, and she brings that same energy to the short, which is just a sort of a quirky and funny ramble of her, but she's great. But aside from Machi and the script, I really like the way Almodovar framed his shots and how he used colors in everything, from the clothes, the set decoration, and the whole mise-en-scene which is something that also played into the other Almodovar short film I saw, which was The Human Boys* from 2020. This one stars Tilda Swinton as a sort of neglected wife or lover, as she's walking around an apartment that's obviously a stage, they're not hiding that, and she's apparently dealing with a breakup. So the short pretty much features her alone, having some cathartic moments of frustration and anger, after which she receives a call from a man, who we never see or listen, And she goes on to talk with him for the rest of the short through a series of emotional ups and downs. Even though there are 10 years between them, there are some similarities between this and La Concejal Antropófaga because both feature extensive monologues from one actress who Almodóvar lets run wild with. And Swinton totally owns it as she makes the most out of every sentence and inflection. So two shorts that definitely piqued my interest in other Almodóvar films, so I'm definitely going to have to check more of his stuff.
1: A film with a punctuation symbol on its title.
0: National Punctuation Day was September 24, so I wanted to check a film with a punctuation symbol in its title. So I went with one that I've seen dozens of times, and that's What's Opera, Doc? This is one of the most popular animated shorts from Mary Melodies, so I'm sure that most of you have seen it, but it follows the familiar setup of Elmer Fudd chasing Bugs Bunny while parodying various operas from 19th century composer Richard Wagner, along with Storms, Earthquakes, An Overweight Horse, and some ballet. My friend Brian Clarkson said, Glad to hear you're okay and back online. Plus, a big yes to what's opera doc. Again, I've seen this a lot of times since I was a kid, but I think this is the first time I've seen it not dubbed in Spanish, and also with a more critical eye. It's quite impressive, the attention to detail from director Chuck Jones, writer Michael Maltese, and composer Milt Franklin, in how seamlessly they weave it with the music and animation. It's definitely priceless.
1: A film with the word fall or autumn in the title.
0: Fall started in September 22, so I was looking for a film with the words fall or autumn in the title. I found this short film from Jonathan Glazer, the director of Under the Skin and Sexy Beast. This short is called The Fall. Now, Glazer is definitely an intriguing director, so I went with this. The short follows a mob of masked men pursuing one of them, who's also masked, and enacting some sort of trial on him. So what's the sentence? To put a noose on his neck and drop him down an endlessly deep well. The short lasts only seven minutes and has pretty much no dialogue, so there's not much one can say about the story, but that doesn't seem to be what? interest glazer what he does seem to be interested in is in creating an eerie and unsettling atmosphere whether it is because of the grotesque design of the mask the creepy vibe of the minimalist score, the end result is nightmarish so if you like glazer or if you like visually eerie stuff then this is definitely for you a
1: film that starts with the letters q or r
0: for this category i went with rejected from don herzfeld Most people know Hertzfeld for It's Such a Beautiful Day, an animated feature he released in 2012, which I haven't seen, but Rejected, which came out in 2000, is a collection of brief shorts allegedly devised as potential ads for both the fictional family learning channel and Johnson & Mills Corporation. Their rejection subsequently drives the animator to progressively lose his sanity, which is in turn reflected in his work and the fictional world within it. But the thing is that, like I said, this is all fictional. Hertzfeld has said that he has never worked in advertising but he still uses a format to take jabs at consumerism, among other things, with a tone that goes from surreal and absurd to dark and gruesome. My friend Kenham said, Oh my god, rejected! My spoon is too big! I have some indelible memories of seeing that for the first time. The truth is that most of the shorts are hilarious, either by design or just because of how bizarre and what the fuck they are. I really enjoyed watching it, so I'm definitely looking forward to more of Hertzfeld's stuff.
1: A science fiction film.
0: Now, let's talk about a feature, a sci-fi feature. And for this category, I went with 2014's Predestination. This film stars Ethan Hawke, who plays an agent from an advanced government agency that uses time travel to stop crimes before they occur, something that takes them back and forth as they track potential criminals. After an incident leaves the agent's card, he is sent on a final mission, which is crucial to the continuity of the life he knows. This film was recommended a while ago by a Twitter friend, Spider-Man Noir, at LaughMatician. He said, yes, let us know what your thoughts are. Well, I'm going to let you know my thoughts, and it's that I really enjoyed it. Even though the premise might sound action-oriented or even similar to Spielberg's Minority Report, the truth is that this is a more slowly paced and cerebral film. It takes its time to explore its two main characters. The first one, like I said, is Hawk's agent, as he goes back to 1970s to pose as a bartender trying to hunt down a terrorist, a bomber. The other main character is John, the enigmatic customer that comes to the bar and ends up sharing his life story of how he got where he is. The thing is that the film is so full of twists and turns, some that I saw coming, some that I didn't, that even weeks after seeing it, I still can not fully shake it off my mind. Now, I'm a fan of time travel films with mind-bending paradoxes, and this is one of those, so it's right up my alley. Aside from that, the directors, the Spirig brothers, have a good eye for framing and blocking shots. The direction is confident, and there is a very classy, old-school sci-fi atmosphere to it. I thought it was refreshing to see a sci-fi that doesn't necessarily rely on special effects, bangs, and explosions to create a compelling story. I don't want to say more about the film in order to not spoil it, but watch for Sarah Snook, who really steals the show with an excellent and engaging performance. So, this is definitely worth a watch. If you're interested, Predestination is streaming free on the Roku channel, but it's also available for rent on many other streaming platforms.
1: A film from the They Shoot Pictures, Don't They 1000 Greatest Films list, whose ranking includes the number 9.
0: For this category, I went with number 984 on that list, and that is The Thing from Another World. This is the original 1951 film that will later be remade by John Carpenter into the more popular The Thing. I'm a huge fan of that one, so I had been meaning to catch up with this for a long time, and I finally did. The Thing from Another World follows a U.S. Air Force crew sent to investigate an unusual aircraft that crashes at the North Pole. Along with a crashed UFO, they find an advanced but dangerous alien that feeds on blood, forcing Captain Patrick Henry, played by Kenneth Toby, and his men to stop it. It's important to put this film within the context on which it was released, which was the peak of the Cold War, so the presence of this creature can be seen as a metaphor of the threat of communism sneaking up on us. But even if you don't care about that, the film is still a pretty tight sci-fi thriller. It is one step above the typical 50s sci-fi goofiness. It might take a bit to get things going and the logistics of how the creature operates are not that clear, but it does manage to keep an atmosphere of tension and the way the creature is shot is quite menacing. I might have preferred a more prolonged climax, where the creature posed more of a threat, but at 87 minutes, it is a pretty lean film. It might not be as great as the remake, but it does what it needs to do.
1: A film featuring Native American characters.
0: Native American Day was on September 23, so I wanted to see a film with Native American characters. I found this short called In the Beginning Was Water and Sky from 2017. It is about the hundreds of Indian boarding schools that were opened during 19th century U.S. with the intention of re-educating Native American children in the quote-unquote American way. The short follows a very loose narrative that mostly focuses on two children as they are taken from their tribe and into one of these boarding schools, where they are witnesses to mistreatment, torture, and abuse from the leaders. But the most important thing for director and writer Ryan Ward is the visuals, which are gorgeous, and the effective use of native music. This short was apparently made to create awareness about these atrocities, so make sure you Google for it, check it out, and spread the word.
1: A film from the 1990s.
0: For this category, we go back to a couple of features. I saw two films. First one, it was long overdue for me, and it's A League of Their Own from 1992. Directed by a woman, Penny Marshall, it tells the story of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, the female baseball league that was created during World War II, so baseball owners could still profit while men were in the war. It focuses on two sisters, Dottie and Kit, played by Gina Davis and Lori Petty, two softball players from Oregon that are recruited for this new league, but also on Jimmy Dugan, played by Tom Hanks, a washed-out alcoholic baseball player that is hired as their coach. My friend Scotty at Pirate Scotty said, love it! My friend Pete from the middle-class film class said, Very fun movie. Watched it many times as a kid. Darren Longberg said, It's great. More for Hank's jerk-to-less-of-a-jerk comedic performance than the predictable sister-versus-sister plot, oddly enough, but still lots of fun. And I agree, Hanks and also Davies are excellent, but the conflict between the sisters feels a bit half-baked. The film is also bookended by two segments set in present time as the now-old players meet to commemorate their achievements, but I don't think these two bits were executed as well as the body of the film. Putting that aside, the film is indeed a lot of fun and very enjoyable. My friend Sussed Up Bad at G Money G said, I've met Biddy Schramm. She's so nice. Biddy Schramm is the actress that plays Evelyn Gardner, the player to which Hank screams in perhaps the most iconic scene from the film, THERE'S NO CRYING IN BASEBALL! So that's nice. Thanks for sharing. The other 90s film I saw was actually a rewatch, and that's Eve's Bayou from 1997. This is a film I had seen back in the day, but I barely remembered it. Directed and written by another woman, Casey Lemons, it follows the Baptiste, an affluent family living in a Creole community in Louisiana. The parents, Louis and Ross, played by Samuel Jackson and Lynn Whitfield, are a well-respected couple. He's a doctor, and she's more or less a socialite, but behind their facades of wealth and respectability, there seems to be countless of skeletons waiting to be unburied. Most of the issues come when their 10-year-old daughter, Eve, played by Journey Smollett, witnesses her father having sex with another woman. This is brushed aside by all members of the family for different reasons, but particularly to maintain the stability and appearances of the family. But as the infidelities start to accumulate, the family is forced to face them. One of the things that Lemons manages to create is a very gothic ambience to the film. She also has a very good eye for her scenes, but the story does get out of her hands at times. There are several references to the gift of sight that allegedly both Eve and her aunt Moselle possess, but that isn't expanded or explained enough. Speaking of Moselle, she is wonderfully played by Debbie Morgan, but unfortunately her character seems to run a parallel story that is kind of dropped halfway through. But putting that aside, all of the performances are great and the bond between the two sisters provide a solid emotional core to the story even if the logistics around it aren't properly executed. So if you like great performances and slow burn dramas, check this out. It's Bayou is currently streaming free on Voodoo, Redbox, Hubla and Pluto.
1: A film from Central America.
0: September 15 commemorates the act of independence of Central America, which resulted in the independence of Guatemala, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Honduras, and Nicaragua from the Spanish Empire. So I was looking for a film from any of these countries and settled on La Llorona from Guatemala. The film was released in 2019, directed by Jairo Bustamante, and I have to say it was absolutely nothing like I was expecting. This isn't a cheap, scare filled monster film, but rather a quite profound psychological thriller-slash-drama with a very strong political core about a man and his family haunted by guilt and regret. The man in question is Enrique Monteverde, played by Julio Díaz, a former Guatemalan dictator that is being tried for genocide but ends up acquitted. However, that doesn't stop him or his family from suffering the fallout of his crimes. These are manifested in the form of Alma, played by Maria Mercedes Coroy, a young villager that comes to work for the family as a maid, but whose presence might hide more than what it seems. Again, I was surprised by the whole nature of the film, but in a positive way. I'm all for a good political drama slash thriller with dark undertones, and yet I still don't think it was executed as well as it could have. The film is a slow, slow burn, but I think it waits too long to pay off, and in some ways I felt like it fizzled out. However, it still has a lot on its favor. All of the performances are pretty good, especially Margarita Kenefic as Monteverde's wife Carmen, and Bustamante's direction, the way he builds up dread and fear, how he frames his shots, and his patience in letting the camera linger during certain scenes, I thought was great. If you're interested, La Llorona is streaming free on AMC+, DirecTV, and Shutter.
1: A film with the number 9 in its title.
0: For this category, I went with a 1934 pre-code film called The Ninth Guest. This film follows a group of eight guests invited to a mysterious party by an unknown host. As they settle in, they are informed that they are part of a deadly game which will result in the death of each of them. This film was a really nice surprise. I had never heard of it, but I was very pleased with it. It has a simple premise and a brief runtime of 65 minutes, which results in a breezy and entertaining whodunit that keeps you guessing until the end. Most of the characters are colorful and well-delineated, even if some of their introductions feel a bit scattered. There are a couple of the actors that I think shine more than the others, especially Edward Ellis and Hardy Albright. Unfortunately, the two characters that end up being the leads are a bit on the bland side, and the revelation of who's behind everything feels a bit convoluted. Regardless, I really enjoyed this film quite a bit. A freebie. The last film that I saw was a freebie, and it was the quote-unquote sequel to 2016 Train to Busan, which is titled Peninsula. For those that don't know, Train to Busan followed a father and daughter as they fought their way through a zombie outbreak on board of a train. That film ended up becoming a massive hit among critics and audiences and is frequently cited as one of the best zombie films of the last years. This sequel is more of a sidequel. It follows Jung Seok, played by Gang Dong-won, a former military captain that is haunted by the guilt of not being able to save his sister and nephew. Now living as a refugee in Hong Kong, he is recruited by some mobsters to enter the quarantined South Korean Peninsula to retrieve a truck full of cash. Of course, the catch is that the place is now overrun by zombies. Kind of like Aliens and Alien, this sequel veers more into action territory with horror elements. The main beats are that of a typical action heist film as Jung Seok has to fend off zombies, but also a rogue militia that now controls the area. In the process, he is helped by a family of survivors that still live in the city ruins. The most important thing to enjoy Peninsula is not to expect it to equal Train to Busan in any aspect. As a standalone action-slash-horror film, it is competent enough, with some pretty solid action set pieces. What it lacks, though, is the strong emotional anchor of the first film. Gang is a solid enough lead, but he never evokes the same attachment that the leads of the original did. Also, the reasonings for him to go back, the mobsters and the cash and whatnot, aren't that strong. They feel like what they are, which is an excuse to put our lead character back in the fray. Finally, there is a lot of focus on car chases as several characters race for survival around the streets of South Korea. However, most of the scenes are visibly CGI, but they also stretch the believability as the probabilities of these abandoned streets to be so clear that characters can endlessly race at 100 miles per hour are pretty much null, so it ends up being distracting. But anyway, action is solid enough and so is the film if you come with those expectations. So, that was my September loot. Feel free to check out any of these films, especially these short films. They're very accessible, easy to find, easy to watch, and in many cases, made by up-and-coming directors. As always, if you do watch anything from this loot, let us know via Twitter. We love to get feedback from our listeners. You can find the podcast at TMML2021 and me at TIFCGT. And that is where you can let us know what you watch, give us any recommendation, or just engage with us. Remember you can check the podcast on any podcasting platform, from Apple Podcasts and Spotify to Google Podcasts and Good Pods and everything in between. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Good Pods, any of these platforms that allows you to rate the show or leave a review, feel free to do so. And stay tuned for our next shows. We have a couple of great ones in store now that October is on the way, so stay tuned. <laughs>
1: podcast was brought to you by Johnson & Mills Bean Lard Mulch, now with vitamin C.